Right now, you can get both Sprint's unlimited plan and the iPhone XR with its amazing camera included for just $35 per month per line for five lines. All you need is approved credit and 24-month installment billing. No trade-in required. Visit a Sprint store, Sprint.com, or call 800-SPRINT-1. Phone $15 a month after monthly credit supplied within two bills. If canceled early, remaining balance due. Unlimited basic. After 630-20, pay $32 a month per line with AutoPay. Data deprioritization during congestion. Speed maximums, use rules, and restrictions apply. Right now, you can get both Sprint's unlimited plan and the all-new Samsung Galaxy S10 included for just $35 per month per line for five lines. All you need is approved credit and 24-month installment billing. No trade-in required. Visit a Sprint store, Sprint.com, or call 800-SPRINT-1. Phone $15 a month after $22.50 a month credit apply within two bills. If cancel early, remaining balance due. Unlimited basic after 630 20 Pay $32 per month per line for five lines with auto pay data deprioritization during congestion. Speed maximums, use rules, and restrictions apply. listening to uncle sam soccer podcast keeping you up to date with the latest in american soccer and don't forget to subscribe hello listeners welcome to uncle sam soccer podcast steven jotter and Amon kafai got another Fantastic episode. We got USSF presidential candidate Michael Winograd joining us. Yes, fantastic episode. And we just want to let our viewers or I keep saying viewers, man, but these are our listeners. I mean Same thing. They I view mean, the show. Same thing. Same thing. But we just want to inform for Army guys. We talked to Steve Gans for about an hour, I would say, maybe a little bit less. Winograd uh I had something to do. Uh, uh, so we're restricted to a certain amount of time. We would have loved to go more in depth into his ideas. So um, that's why our interview is more, a little bit more shorter compared to the ones we had with uh, Steve Gans. He has something to do. So mm-hmm. we're not biased towards anybody. We're not giving people certain uh, certain amounts of time. We should let them talk. And if they have a time constraint, we will oblige to it as well. Yes. And uh, we do give a reaction to some of his pointers uh following the interview just kind of yeah i mean it was i thought it was a fun interview it was very interesting um we start to distinguish steve gans and michael winograd now the invitation is open to the other six candidates yeah Um, i'll reiterate kyle martino carlos codero kathy carter eric ronaldo hope solo and paul clagiri we would love to talk to you guys and have a great discussion uh for our listeners Yes, and um, yeah, this we talk about the youth. He he offers different um, ideas on the youth. I think I don't haven't haven't seen a candidate really come up with this idea. Uh, same with the women's game. He follow uh, he offers more concrete ideas than just equality. Now, equality is very important. I want to irradiate that equality. Is is a given? I it's it baffles my mind that we're still on these subjects. But yes, it happens. So we need to make sure we correct those at the top level and on through the uh, throughout society. In fact, we want to make sure we correct those ideas. But it's a given. So uh, Winograd mentions equality, but he offers other concrete examples and ideas on how to promote and change and really boost the women's game because it is. Um, 
when it comes to women's sports, the women's national team is ranked number one when it comes to ratings. Some of the highest rated televised soccer games in America are with the women's. And what's that tell you? We don't care as a nation. We don't care if it's the men or the women. We just care we about just the care sport. We just care if it's soccer. Yes. Yes, yes. But and especially when it's the red, white, and blue. And, but that's just how it is. We just love soccer. As a country, we're continuing to grow, but we genuinely love soccer regardless if it's the men or women. No, I agree. And I think we need to work towards expanding both games. And Winograd, you'll listen to what he says and take it as you will. It's more... It's more than just equality, I think. It's, yeah. it's, a, it's a positive step towards something. It's a lot like what Paula Point was saying about the U.S. Women's Open Cup that he would, he would have proposed if he was president. Yeah, we, we also get into the youth, like I mentioned, as I mentioned, and um, promotion Everyone's relegation. favorite subject, promotion relegation. Joining us right now is USSF presidential candidate michael winograd he's a leading corporate attorney a litigator and advisor to some of the largest companies in the united states adjunct professor at fordman university's law school and of course a soccer lover how's it going michael not bad how are you guys we're doing great yeah we're doing well we're doing well and looking into your history michael you have a long history regarding the sport of soccer you Played collegiate soccer at Lafayette College and professionally in Israel, which I found really interesting. You were an assistant coach at the University of Richmond. You helped organize and manage the largest NCAA Division One men's soccer final for NCAA history, coached youth camps. And since since 09, you served on the board of his of your town's soccer organization, where you've developed coaching and player initiatives. So, why do you love soccer so much? <laughs> I, you know, I mean, you know, look, I, I, I've been playing soccer since I was three years old, and I'm sure like everybody listening, uh, you know, it's just something that has always been, you know, the essential part of my life. I mean, I've, I've, you know, it's, it is, it is, it is something that my entire life, every birthday present anybody ever got me had to do with soccer. It was just the one thing that I, I always loved and, and always will. What do you make of the current state of U.S. soccer? So what I make of the current state of U.S. soccer is, look, we've made great strides in some areas. Uh, you know, I don't look at this as a burn it all down. We need to start from scratch. We've done a lot of really good things. Soccer is a very different animal right now than it was when I was growing up. It's night and day. I mean, when I was growing up, you know, if you wanted to see a, a, an international soccer game, you had to get up early on a Sunday morning and watch soccer made in Germany. And, and, and now, you know, my, my kids can go on TV and we can go on TV and, and almost at any point, at any time, you can find a soccer game somewhere. And a lot of times, multiple games. The, the, the popularity in terms of the, the availability, the, the, the sport is, is, is just a, it's a different sport. It's a different market than it was. It's a different industry than it was when I was growing up. But we've lagged behind in a lot of areas, you know, and I think you can be cynical about why or you cannot be cynical and just say, you know, folks, uh, you know, the, the, the powers that, 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 that be focused on certain areas and, and, and at the expense of some other areas. And those other areas have lagged behind. So when I look at the state of soccer, again, I think we've made great strides in some areas, but some areas have lagged behind. And when you talked about the Trinidad and Tobago game, 
you know, one of the things that had been building up, and, and I'd coached my kids for several years, both at rec and then in travel, and trained them, you know, every week for years. Uh, you know, th- when you coach, and, and I live in New Jersey, it's confusing. The landscape in the youth world is confusing. The decisions that are made, you know, it was, I always had two cards for each kid. I had to pull out one card depending on which game it was, and mm-hmm. one league was supposed to be better, but we always beat those teams, and then we'd go to tournaments, and you never know which, which forms to fill out, or, or be, you know, it all depended on you know, the affiliation and the cards. It was a very confusing landscape for the consumer, and I put a lot of time into figuring it out. It was still confusing. Now, I think... Oh, yeah, go, go ahead. No, go ahead. I want to let you finish your statement. Yeah, so, so, so I, I think... You know, the Trinidad, there were a lot of things brewing over time and a lot of questions that all soccer fans were asking, right? You can, you can say, you know, you, you may have been for or against getting rid of Bob Bradley. You may have been for or against hiring Jurgen Klinsmann and, re, and, and, you know, giving him a new contract. But the big question, at least on my mind, was, was who was making these decisions and how were they being made? There was just zero transparency, and it seemed like a very small group of people were making these very large decisions, and it was unclear whether there was the right mix and group of people that were doing it. So those are the kind of things that had been brewing for a while, and the Trinidad and Tobago game really opened up the possibility to, to, to you know, affect change. Mm, mm. Well. I want to ask you about the failure of the World Cup. If you had been sure. U.S. soccer president at the time, would you have handled it differently than Sunil Gulati? So do you mean if I were the president when we failed to qualify, would I have handled our failure to qualify differently? Yeah, would you have done the same steps that Gulati did uh, because you had a huge uproar from you know the public, uh, the fans in particular? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I you know you know, it's it's a it's a hard question to answer because the relationship that I would have had as president of U.S. Soccer with the fans and with the rest of the U.S. Soccer community and its constituents would have been very different than the relationship Sunil had. My governance style will be night and day. I don't believe, and and you know, let me say this. You can run a successful company as a dictator. You can do it. There are lots of companies that are run that way. I recruit law students all the time. And one of the things I say when they're looking at you know, my law firm and others is, you know, you're going to be looking at a lot of really top law firms, and it'll be exciting. You'll work on cases at all of these that are on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. But there is a culture at each of them that is different. And, and some, for better or worse, you may like one or the other. I don't think that you know the the type of governance where you dictate edicts from an ivory tower in chicago is the right style of government of of governance for us soccer so i am much more inclusive i am much more about building a consensus and the way to do that is by actually involving the people the constituents the people that are being affected by decisions in the decision making process so that there's ownership over that process and there's input from the people with expertise and experience. And so I think had I been president and, and, and you know, experienced a tremendous failure like that, I think the relationship I would have had with the U.S. soccer community would have been much different. So the way I handled it would naturally have been different. I would have already had, um, I would have had much more of a dialogue to, to 
you know, sort of say, look, what happened? What can we do better? But that dialogue would already have been going on. It would have been much easier for me to do. It's very difficult to do that when you haven't been governing and all of a sudden something happens to suddenly switch gears and come out and say, hey, let's all sit down and, and talk through what happened. You know, that's just not the, the, you know, the incumbent sort of governing style. So uh, I would have handled it differently. I, the communication would have been different, but the communication would have been different all along. So I just want to inform our viewers of, or our listeners, sorry, of your platform, which you talked about, which is forming and utilizing an inclusive merit-based transparent advisory committee for critical decisions. And these are your three key points they listed on your website, ensuring equal treatment for women's soccer and taking down the cost barriers in youth soccer and coaching education. So just just start off, um, how are these three initiatives different from the ones other uh, presidential candidates have uh, proposed, such as Ronaldo or Steve Gans or Kathy Carr, just to name a few? And how do you ex- how exactly do you get are you going to get these initiatives to go from the idea stage to the action stage? Because sometimes we hear, oh, mm-hmm. we're going to do this, we're going to do that, but a lot of them just right. seems like all talk, no action. Yeah, so there are there is certainly overlap in many ideas. And, and uh, you know, these ideas have been, you know, my ideas that have been on my platform from the beginning. And certainly people, I think other candidates' ideas have evolved and, and sort of moved in the direction. And, you know, imitation is, is the best form of flattery. But, you know, there, there, is, there's, there, are, there are certainly differences. I don't know that when you look at the details, I think that, that sometimes people don't quite appreciate the nuances and, 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 and the, the subtle differences. But... Ultimately, it's about getting these things into effect. And, you know, what I can tell you is that I've been doing this for 17 years at the highest level. So if you want to talk about an inclusive, you know, form of governance where you're bringing in committees and you're building a consensus on key critical decisions, I've been doing that for Microsoft and Bank of America and Samsung and Bain Capital. You know, people, we've gotten the question, can you lead an organization with $150 million in revenue? You know, I'm dealing with companies with hundreds of times that revenue. You know, Bain Capital has $75 billion under under management. I've negotiated settlements in cases where hundreds of millions of dollars were at stake just over that case. And, And those are, and I say that because saying, you know, everybody, you know, a lot of the candidates say youth, youth soccer is fractured. We got to fix it. Well, that's great. How are you going to do it? Because if it were, if, if, if getting people in a room and, and articulating persuasively a common path forward that you can get buy-in from, from all sides, were an easy thing to do, I'd be out of a job. It's not an easy thing to do. It requires intelligence. It requires fairness and open-mindedness. It requires hard work. You have to be prepared and diligent, and, and, and you need perseverance. And it's a skill. You have to have the ability to synthesize facts in real time, understand varying perspectives, and actually creatively, in real time, come up with solutions that you can articulate to both sides. And the downside to not following that path together. I don't think, you know, I just don't see the other candidates with that skill. And so it's, it's an easy thing to sort of scour the Internet and find a bunch of things and say, look, you know, let's do this, let's do that. You want equal rights for women, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take renegotiating a CBA. I renegotiate contracts mm-hmm. much more complicated than these CB, CBAs all the right. time. And I do it for the highest levels, the biggest companies in the world, 
with their biggest cases. So, you know, saying, can you do it? This is exactly what I do do. And the reason I got into this race, when I looked at the field, frankly, I said, and by the way, I, there are other candidates with strengths that will help them in this job. I just don't know that they have the complete package. I looked at this field and I said, I can do this. I have got the mm. soccer side from all perspectives, mm. playing, coaching, administering, youth, collegiate, professional. I have got the business side at the highest levels. And I've got the skill that it takes to really mend the fractures that we see that are, that are you know, a problem in this game. Yeah, and a large part of your platform is the youth. Now, a two-part question here. You have children that play in the DA or the Development Academy. What do you make of the yep. current system of the Development Academy and overall the issue of youth development in this country? How bad is it, and what would you do differently? Well, so youth development, there are a couple of things. Let me start with youth development. <clears throat> youth development, we need to do a better job. And so I look at youth development as, as you know, there, there, there is the development of the entire body, which is you need to make sure that, you know, we need to restructure the states. You know, right now, like we were talking about, the fragmentation within states, you've got, it's basically a conglomerate. You've got so many overlapping businesses and competing businesses. Nobody knows what product is for what. We need to clarify things for the consumer, number one. And that's, that's the, that part of it is sort of restructuring on a state-by-state -state basis because there's not going to be a one-size-fits-all solution in this country. You go state-by-state -state and figure it out. You also need to reduce the cost barriers, both in, for play and for coaching. Because the idea of, coach uh, of player development is getting good players in front of good coaches at an early age. So we need to make sure that all the kids have access and, 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 and that means lowering the costs. It means getting into inner cities and, and uh, you know, underrepresented places and getting fields like the U.S. Soccer Foundation does. And it means making sure that coaches, you know, you take, you know, a, a woman who graduates college and she was a Division One college player and she decides not to go into soccer, but rather to pursue a career in business. But she loves soccer and she wants to coach kids on, you know, on the side and, you know, keep giving back to the game. And you're going to tell a recent college grad, well, the first thing you should do is hone your coaching skills. You, you know, you need to learn how to learn how to teach, learn how to coach, um, you know, get certain licenses. And, and we're going to charge a hundred, you know, $1,500 for a coaching license. And by the way, you have to get a hotel and travel there on top of that. That's ridiculous. So you need to reduce the cost and get, you know, in order to help get kids in front of coaches early on. For the elite athletes, we need to do a better job identifying right, right now. And, and what, what I've put forward are, are forming state soccer centers. So each state and more, you know, basically to mirror the associations, you know, bigger states will have more than one. You put in a state soccer, a, a, a state soccer center it has fields and it houses a state soccer director. And that person for the elite players that are looking to get to our national team, that person is a, setting up scouting and development, IDing players across all leagues objectively. And, and we're going to pay money for that position. We want that position to be competitive. We need to make sure that we are getting the best that we can get. We need to make sure that, that when 
great young soccer minds and coaches are looking at their opportunities, that that is a viable alternative to going and coaching Division I college or even MLS. And so that person will be in charge in that area, working with the state association to come up with the structure that makes sense so that kids aren't traveling all over the place and, you know, that we were minimizing the, the time in cars and, and things make sense for the players and the parents. And we need to make sure that so that we can focus on player development and we need to make sure that we're recruiting across all leagues objectively. And then in conjunction with the leagues, we're going to have blackout dates throughout the year. And that state director will be able to pull in the players that they've identified through the scouting into training sessions. And, and there'll be a lot, you know, we're, we're looking, you know, eight, 10, 12, 14 per year. The idea is in player development, you know, some people have different views on this. Some people think that U.S. soccer should be telling all the youth teams, you should play a 4-3-3 and here's all the skills that we want you to teach and here are the tactics we want you to teach and here's how you need to play. I don't believe that. I think that's ridiculous. I don't think it would work and I don't think it should ever be tried because it's just the wrong thing to do in a country as diverse as ours, geographically, demographically, you know, et cetera. But rather... You, you, you offer minimum standards, you, you, you focus on the key, easily digestible things that everybody should be doing in technical development, health and nutrition, you know, those types, physical development, those types of the basic minimum, easily digestible uh, standards. And then it's up to everybody to have the discretion to, to train their teams. When, when the state director pulls them into that state training center, that's when you can say, this is the style of play that we want to play on our national team, and this is the style we're going to work on when you're here with us. But those are different ways to start you know, making player development better and getting kids in front of good coaches at an earlier age. So, I mean, it, it, sound, it sounds like, Michael, along with your uh... – you you want to increase the the youth development with these uh, soccer uh, soccer facilities. You also kind of want to cast a bigger net uh, around some of the uh, pool of um, uh, players in the U.S. Is, is that pretty is that pretty accurate? So we we try to minimize on the players that are uh, missed out due to either lack of poor coaching or lack of uh, access to certain things. I think that's right. You know, again, you know, we we. We, in terms of strictly player development, you've, again, it's getting players in front of good coaches at the earliest age. And, and, and that entails a lot of things. It means making coaching education more accessible so that we can get, you know, that we, we can, you know, coaches can continue to get better. It means, it means and, and then getting, you know, you know, better teachers in front of kids at earlier ages. And it means making sure that kids have access to the game and that their leagues are structured, that the paths that they can take are clearly defined. When I say that restructuring on a state-by-state basis, the youth landscape is key to player development, that's because if you're sitting at home as a parent, you may be saying to yourself, you know, my, my daughter, I don't know if she's ever going to play professionally. I don't know if she's going to be on the national team. But she loves the game. And she's competitive, and I think she's pretty good. So I'd like to see how far she can go with this game. In today's now, it's unclear where you can put her. Should I go into this league or that league or this league? 
you know, this one says it's better than that one, but this one's teams are beating that one. It seems that they're competing. I've got half the girls in my town going to this league, half my girls in the town going to that league. I don't understand where anything, you know, where anything fits. We need to restart. We need to integrate and clarify the structure so that everybody knows which product is for which is, is for what. And that may entail, you may go into a state and a state may say to you, everything is going perfectly here. If you want to play recreationally, you can play NASO. If you think you're a little bit more competitive, you can play in U.S. Youth. If you're a little bit better, better than that, you can go into U.S. Club. And if you're super elite, you can play Academy. And it all works perfectly. Other states will tell you there's in those various leagues a competition between them. And so maybe the answer is to put them under single umbrellas and do promotion and relegation in youth. Maybe the answer is because you, you know, the private businesses are entitled to compete. A league is entitled to say, I think I can do it better. I'm going to start my own business. That's fine, but we need to make sure that we're doing it in a way that makes sense. So if we're going to compete, if you're going to have leagues competing, can we at least say, look, this league will operate in this geographic part of the state? Because what we don't want is what happens too often now, where kids from the same area get diluted because you, they get pushed into different leagues because they don't know which is for what. They wind up in different leagues, so the teams are diluted. And because you're splitting the kids, now the kids have to travel two hours for a game because there's, you, you don't have enough, of a, a, you know, enough participation in a particular area. We need to figure out a way to make this more efficient. And I'm confident, again, this is what, I've, this is what I do. You know, I mean, I've been in negotiations with you know, multinational you know, you know, parties from different countries and, and different interests and lots, of, and lots of money at stake. But you need to appeal to reason and rationality and make people understand the ramifications of not doing it the proper way. And I think you get into a room and you can convince private parties that this is the best thing for the kids and it's going to ultimately be good for your business, right? They're all, at the end of the day, they've mm. got businesses to run, but that's okay. But we can address how this is going to be good for your business and it's going to be better for the kids and it's going to serve the mission of developing kids at a higher level. I want, I want to ask you one more question about the youth. Now, a, sure. a, a lot of candidates have talked about the youth, youth, the youth, the youth. Is it a coaching issue, and is the youth development an issue of not the of talent not going upwards? Because we do see quite a bit of talent. I know a lot of complaint from fans and the fans I've spoken to who have messaged us have asked us if it's been, especially with the failure of the World Cup, was it just Bruce Arena and just a a bad cycle where we were in between cycles of or generations is a better term of footballers or is it mm-hmm. we're actually not developing talented players well i think i you know i think if you're asking about the failure of the men's team to qualify for the world cup it's a combination of all of that i think mm. you know don't forget we failed to qualify for the world cup we also failed to qualify for the last two olympics mm. so there's there is a there's an issue in player development the the we have focused on player development. Now, now, look, one of the things that I would point out is that when you look at when the significant changes in the, in the, with the academies and the, and the different um, changes that have been implemented to try and really focus on player development came into effect, and you're talking about 10 years. And, you know, sometimes things take a couple of generations to really kick in. But there's clearly, when you, when you, when you look at how far soccer has evolved from when I played in the 70s, 
you know, as a kid to, to, you know, to now on the business side and the marketing side, the, 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 the player development has not kept pace with that. So we've done really well in developing one side. We just obviously have not done well. And that's not to say that players are worse now than they were. It's just that the rest of the world seems to keep, continue to get better and, and we're not. And so we do need to focus on player development because ultimately that is what is going to help our national team win games. Now, there are other factors that affect the success of our national team. I don't know that people appreciate how hard it is to play in CONCACAF. It is a very competitive um, you know, it's a very competitive group and it is really difficult to play on the road. It's much more difficult, I think, in CONCACAF to play road games than it is in UEFA, where you know you're going into a stadium with a perfect field and, and great conditions. The decision-making around our national team has, again, I, I, I look at some of the decisions, you know, uh, coaches matter at the national team level. They, do a diff- they serve a different function than a coach of an MLS team, for example, or of a youth team, it's much more of a manager. It's much more of a selecting and, you know, just basically selecting players from a menu and figuring out which players will make the best team and then managing them. You're not with them nearly as much as a, as a, as a coach of a normal team, of a regular team. But, you know, decisions as to who our coach should be, decisions as to where to play home games, I just don't know how these decisions have been made at U.S. Soccer. I was I attended the game, the Costa Rica, uh, the, the game against Costa Rica at Red Bull Arena. Oh, I live yeah. in New Jersey. I, it was terrific to have the opportunity to go, and I could see merits on both sides to playing the game at Red Bull Arena. Right. But when I heard after the fact that Bruce Arena came, when Bruce Arena came out and said, "Hey, I was never even consulted on where to play that game." That, to me, is, is absolutely inexcusable. I cannot imagine a scenario where I were president of the U.S. Soccer Federation, where our national team is playing a critical game, World Cup qualifying, in a critical stretch, and I didn't even consult the coach mm. as to where the game should be played. That, to me, is just inexcusable yeah. and, and quite you know, stunning. I just wanted to go uh, jump to one of your other key points when you talked about the women's game, uh, which you talked about have issues that have plagued the growth as well. You speak a lot about equality, whether it comes to travel, pay, mm-hmm. and the playing services around. What else would you do to help the women's game grow? Uh, especially, would you do anything to uh, uh, with the NWSL? Absolutely. I, I think – so. Y- you know, that, that is not the, – the equality issue certainly will help the growth uh, on the women's side. I, I don't necessarily – I don't always see it as the same thing as helping them grow. So I, I look at that as a slightly different issue. You know, the equality thing is just, in my mind, I, I just it, – it baffles me. I don't understand how we can be in 2017 and not have absolute – you know, have absolute equality. Right. And there's no excuse for it. And the only excuse I've ever heard is tying it to revenue saying, well, the men's side makes more revenue, so they should get more money. Well, if you look at the mission of U.S. soccer, that's just not true, right? The, 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 there, is, there is no, you know, the, the, when you look at the mission, it is to serve the men and women equally and grow this sport in, in popularity and, and in quality. It has nothing to do with revenue, and revenue, you know, tying anything to revenue undermines our mission completely. That said, even if you were to look at revenue, 
I think it's very misleading to even say that as a factual matter, because in a, especially in a cycle like this, where the men made the World Cup, I'm sorry, where the men did not make the World Cup and the women did, the revenue on the women's side is probably going to be even higher. And as a third point, even if you didn't believe any of that, which is, you know, you can't, even if you didn't believe any of that, the amount of money it would take to to create equality is like a single digit percentage of the $80 million U.S. soccer spent on its national teams. So the whole, the, the fact that there is not absolute equality already is baffling to me. And I will tell you that very early on as president, we will be at the negotiating table renegotiating. We will not wait for these things, the CBAs to expire. We will renegotiate them and there will be equality. That's number one. In terms of growing women's sport, obviously the equality goes to showing the respect that our, our women absolutely deserve and, and have earned you know, tenfold. Right. But in terms of growing it, we need to focus on, on increasing the stability and profitability of the NWSL. Mm-hmm. Now, I think U.S. soccer has done a very good job. They've supported the NWSL considerably, and I know that the NWSL looks forward to the day that, they, that it can stand on its own without financial support, but U.S. soccer absolutely should continue to do whatever it can to support the NWSL. And I'll give you, I'll give you an example of something that I haven't understood why it hasn't happened. I think one of the keys, one of the ways that the NWSL will succeed is through partnerships with, M- with, with MLS. And, and several teams are doing that. You know, when you, when you think about it, you've got, you know, teams in the same market in MLS that have, the, you know, NWSL has teams in the same market as MLS, where those teams are financially stable, they're secure, there's a lot of synergies. You can use front office staff, there's a lot of overlap where you can reduce you know, use a, 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 an established infrastructure and reduce your costs and use those costs and capital that you're saving to invest into your team in the league. One of the ways that I've never understood is even if you're not going to partner, you know, I, w- I went with my, my kids to a, an NWSL game at Rutgers University a couple of years ago, and it was fine. You know, Rutgers is a nice stadium for, a, you know, a nice setup for a, you know, a college, <clears throat> but it's not Red Bull Arena. And I've spoken to folks about that. I've said, well, why doesn't Sky Blue play at Red Bull Arena? It's actually not that far apart from, you know, it's not, not even that far a distance between that and where they do play. Right. And, they, and what I was told is, well, it would cost a lot of money to open up Red Bull Arena. They just don't get enough fans. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't bring in enough revenue to cover it. And there's a situation where I say two things. Number one, that's where U.S. soccer should step in and pick up the difference pay for Red Bull Arena, any, any loss in, the, in, in opening up Red Bull Arena, U.S. soccer should step in and say, all right, I'll pay for it. And my presumption, I, you know, I suspect that it's a chicken and an egg thing. If Sky Blue moves into Red Bull Arena, they will get more fans. You'll have a more professional atmosphere. It is a mm-hmm. better facility. Mm-hmm. You'll get more fans. And so that's one of the ways that we can help. I think there's other things as well. You know, th- there are... U.S. soccer can work with, you know, collaborate and, you know, can work with, with the NWSL in terms of ensuring that women have post-playing career opportunities. You know, you want to attract players into the league, and, and, and one of the ways to do that is to say, hey, listen, don't go straight to Wall Street. Don't go to that, you know, that, that job in sales. Why don't you come here, play for a little bit? And by the way, you can always go back to the real world and work, but we, if, you, if you succeed here, 
you know, you know, we take care of our own. You know, look at all these women who are going into media to front office. Into, you know, we're forming a network in re- in business where alumni of the NWSL, you know, will work with you to to place you and and get you good jobs. I've done that. I, you know, Lafayette College for the last, I graduated Lafayette in 92. And for the last 10 years, I've had the juniors and seniors of the team with the, with the staff come to my law firm. We have a, a, a networking reception with, uh, you know, 30 or 40 alumni. And we ask a handful of folks to give a brief five-minute overview of what they do. I'm a lawyer. I'm a doctor. I'm in sales. I'm in marketing, whatever it is. This is what I do. This is how you become what I am. Mm-hmm. To give people an idea of what sort of the, the you know what kind of job paths and career paths they can follow after college, and it becomes a networking event. People have gotten internships. They've gotten jobs out of it. That's the kind of camaraderie that we can do if we focus a little bit on post-playing career opportunities that will help recruit better players into that league. Um, and look, that league has done a, an incredible job of sustaining itself. Mm-hmm. I think it's at a crossroads right now. I actually think it's moving from survival into now let's start to grow. And I think you know we should, we should absolutely 100% support those efforts. Oh, absolutely. And I think uh, the women's game is in, at an interesting point uh, because they're going to be the next representation at any World Cup uh, because the men obviously failed. Now, moving on to the structure of American soccer at the league level, I want to ask you first mm-hmm. about the lawsuit going on with NESL and the U.S. Soccer Federation. Do you have any comments on that? You know, I I, I won't comment too much about it because it's still pending. Right. And I don't think it'd be appropriate to, to comment on pending litigation. I will say this. It would be an absolute travesty if the NASL, you know, doesn't maintain second division status at least and, and is is in and, and is somehow forced to fold. It'd be a, it would be an absolute travesty. And my hope is that the parties can sit down at the table and again, you know, these are private businesses. U.S. soccer, you know, can't dictate, you know, it has control over designations, but it can't dictate what other private businesses should do. But my hope is that somebody will be able to bring parties together and, and earn enough respect and trust from both sides that you can get them to set emotions aside and, and work in the best interest of the game. Which I think will, which I think will further the interests of each of their businesses, and that's, and, and you know, hopefully there will be a resolution. Absolutely, and Michael, first off, thank you for joining us. I know you're you're a busy man, and we're just gonna let we're just gonna ask you this one final question before uh, sure. we let you go, and um, it's the it's the question that it's all over Twitter. It's all over, and it's all about promotion and relegation. Yep. You know, we hear, we hear about we hear we hear about it yep. daily. It may be a big issue, maybe not. You offer a really interesting uh, system that re- that implements promotion and relegation. Do you think that your uh, your system that you're proposing would satisfy those who are who are clamoring uh, for it to be implemented in U.S. soccer? Well, I, I do. I think it would be, you know, listen, the, the, the folks who are clamoring for promotion relegation want full-on pro-rel. But what, what you have to understand is that U.S. soccer 
U.S. soccer is not and should not be in the position of ramming things down people's throats. It's one of the things that they've done in the past, and it's one of the things that they should not do in the future. And that includes with respect to private businesses. I don't know that they have the authority to do it. You know, promotion and relegation, I think promotion and relegation would be absolutely fantastic. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I think I, I, I for, for, you know, I'm sure as many, you know, as, as many others, I'd love to see it in all the leagues in the U.S. I'd love to see it in baseball. I'd love to see it in, in you know, football if they could do it, you know, if they had right, you know, right, lower yeah. leagues. I think, I think it's a, it is the best system. It is merit-based. It is, right. I, everything about it is, is spectacular. And I do think you can, you, know, you can go in and make a case to, to MLS and that, that you, know, you, should, you should think about accepting this. At the end of the day, it's MLS's decision. MLS is a private business. It does not have to agree to promotion and relegation. It's got contracts that, that, you know, very sophisticated contracts that franchise owners have entered into with the league that, that you know, are, are binding. And, and there's, there are practical limits. So what you need to do is be able to convince people of the business case. And this is something they've all thought through. It's not like they haven't thought through these things. I think an interim step is at least something where people can say, you know, again, when you're, when you're dealing with private business, this is what I've done. It's what I do for a living. It's what I've done for 17 years. You need to figure out what are the concerns. You know, if, if, sit down with MLS. Sit down with the NASL. Sit down with USL. So what are your concerns about ProRail? What, what don't, why don't you want it? How, and then once you understand the concerns, you see in negotiations a lot of times people – are butting heads and they are absolute at odds within one another. And when you actually get them to open up, you realize that what one is concerned about has nothing, you know, the other doesn't even care about. And what the other cares about, the other side doesn't, you know, isn't really concerned with. And so there's an easy fix to, to getting parties together. If, if one of the things that MLS is concerned about is, all right, I've spent $150 million on my franchise to get into this club, why should I let others sort of come in for free? And I'm not going to risk my $150, $150 million investment and, and say, wait a minute, so my team has a bad year and I spent $150 million and now I'm all of a sudden in the second division. And so the interim step that I think is at least something that we can approach to in a shorter timetable is the idea of guest spots, where you say to MLS teams, you're grandfathered in, you're not going to get relegated, but we're going to create Two, two guest spots. You can come up with a number, but two guest spots. And we'll have a promotion. And then if those two teams do well, if they don't finish in the bottom three, bottom four, they get to stay. And, and that guest spot doesn't open up. If they, don't, if they do finish in the bottom three or four, the guest spot, they get relegated, that guest spot opens up for another team to come up. It is at least something to start socializing the it, It's exciting. It mm-hmm. gives teams in the lower division a chance to compete in MLS. We can all see how it goes. There's still that excitement of promotion and relegation, and, it's an, and, it's an, and it's an, it gives you the ability to socialize that idea, test it, and, and, and pressure test it, and see how it's working. Mm. With the hope, you know, at least as a soccer fan, with the hope that you achieve pr- full promotion and relegation at some point. The way to achieve promotion and relegation, in my mind, Again, you can talk about these interim steps, but, it, but again, it's not ramming things down people's throats. It's building up the lower divisions. It's focusing on building the profitability, stability, 
and stability of the lower division. So that gap between the lower divisions and MLS closes, and it makes it more of a realistic practicality Mm -hmm. to create full promotion relegation. Well, Michael, unfortunately, we're out of time. Would love to talk to you know, but uh, more, but we know you got to go here. Um, just it's our shameless plug. So, where can we find you? Where can we find your website? Where can we find uh, where you have more of your ideas and where the listeners can contact you if you have if they had any questions? Sure. So, my my website is www.winogradussf.com. So www.winogradussf.com and my uh, I'm on Twitter at winogradussf um, and you know I've, I've, I've tried to get everything up there there's a uh, an in the press tab on my website where you know they've got my platform up there I've got some thoughts on other key topics and I've got an in the press tab which has um, some interviews that I've done and some uh, you know both you can listen to some you can read some articles uh, and it's a sort of good central location, mm-hmm. I think, to, to get a flavor for who I am. Well, fantastic. Thank you so much. Thanks, Michael. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate it. That was a great discussion about uh, Michael Winograd's uh, ideas for when he becomes U.S. president. Yeah, and uh, definitely different. Like, we're f- I finally I can dis- I can tell you hand over heart that I can define Steve Gans and I can define Michael Winograd. I can really, I, yeah, I can define nice. the differences. That's what we were hoping to get out of these interviews, out of the you know dialogue these conversations and i think we got them which is fantastic because i think that's that's what we need we need clarity in this process although we have no vote we have absolutely no say we're not going to throw up our support behind anybody but that's just i i want to know what they're going to do for the sport i love most because a lot of these people are successful they're attorneys they honestly make quite a bit of money you know i think you have to be very well off in order to want want to volunteer to basically run for a volunteer position. Do you mean you don't get paid to be president of U.S. Soccer Federation? But aren't they going to change that? They should, but I don't know if they will. That's a question. I saw a report, but that could just be fake news. Yeah, it could be. I mean, Stephen's the king of fake news. But <laughs> let's let's talk about some of his discussion points. Yeah, I yeah. really I really was interested with his idea of having those national soccer facilities or those state soccer facilities sorry yeah I, and i i mean the problem is this is coming out of the, obviously the budget of that surplus right what is that going to do and is his system going to i mean you know change for change's sake doesn't necessarily mean all always good things will you know happen 
the outcome might not necessarily be what you want it to be just because you change it. So I'm curious to know more in depth on how the financial ramifications are going. Because if you're going to put one in every state, it's not cheap, right? So Maybe, maybe you regionalize it. That I think you go to more – like, and the regions can be relatively small. Like, for example, I would almost put one in the state of California and the state of Texas because it's just so big. But, like, the northeast, the New England area, put one there. Bang. Then you could put one in the Midwest. Right, and that will cut down some of the costs that you'll have. I mean, if you're having a full-on-fledged facility, it's going to be, it's gonna be an, an expensive investment. But if you do it the right way and compromise and, you know – do it, you know, in a regionalized way. You're gonna save a lot of money. I mean, yeah, it'll and cut down travel and that. Another interesting idea that Winograd talked about, and he really feels. I feel like he has a passion for this. It's the coaching aspect and how I think it's very critical that some of our coaching isn't good, especially at the youth level, and the confusion. Among parents, let me tell you from personal experience, it's confusing. Even when I grew up, I don't the differences between the leagues, payments, travel, tournament, how much it costs. Like soccer is not a cheap sport, and when it's you add confusion on top of that, it's not good. It's it's yeah, the coaching aspect of things. I mean, we at times we don't have the best coaches out there. I mean, part of it has to do with how hard it is to get a uh, coaching license. I mean, we talked, uh, it's crazy. We, we, we had this interview on the second episode of our show, but I keep referencing it and you keep referencing it with Fred Kaiser, who's a high school star coach. And he said, getting those, getting those badges aren't, e- isn't easy. It's no, tough. It's tough. And it's, it's tough. Time it's time consuming. And yep. the thing is, it might not even be the money, but, these guys can't afford to go, you know, take a week off from work or something to go and try to get a coaching license or something like that. It's 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 a very uh, time consuming. It's also very expensive as well, and that that's that's preventing, I think, some of our more brilliant minded uh, tactical coaches to you know, or when I say tactical, you know, what I mean coaches to actually showcase them and become coaches for the youth. And I think that's a really key issue as well. But Stephen, I want to ask you. He seemed very passionate when he talked about the women's uh, game, and he also really proposed, I thought was a really interesting idea uh, in terms of having them play at those uh, big stadiums. Because I mean, does I know Orlando City and the Portland Thorns, uh, or, or, or Orlando Pride and the Portland Thorns, they play mm-hmm. in their respective stadiums, but uh, which are the MLS-owned ones. But I mean, what, what do you make of that? Do you think that'd be a positive, or do well, you think? So there's two routes of my thinking. First, for example, New England. Where do they play, the refs? They play at Foxborough. Would the women's also want to play at Foxborough? I don't, I, unfortunately, I don't have where they play in front of me. If you, if you have the moment here as I talk, if you could look up where the... Is there even a women's team in New England? It should be. It's the Boston um, Breakers. I remember watching them a couple years ago on uh, Fox... Was it Fox Soccer? When they used to broadcast the games. Um... They play at Harvard. They play at Harvard, so it's closer to downtown, and I think that's that's an issue. Now, if, if, if in his case, he talked about Rutgers and Red Bull Arena, and, and he 
he says it's not too far. Fine. And the, the, obviously, he pointed out the issue of opening up the stadium, right? Um, FC Dallas in the U.S. Open Cup played at SMU because it was too costly to open up uh, Toyota Stadium. Stadium, yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah. if we're going to do that for the women's game, what are we going to do on the men's side to help the cost of putting play uh, teams in soccer stadiums? Why doesn't you know what about NYCFC? They're playing at a Yankee Stadium. You know what about Louis? 